Maybe you're lost. Maybe you're searching. Maybe you know exactly where you are. Whatever the case, welcome to Skeevland. I'm your host, Alan McDonnell, and today's guest is cult figure Rob Zabrecki. The world may soon know Rob Zabrecki as a best-selling memoirist. You may already know Rob as a cult character actor or from the cult favorite 90s band Possum Dixon. Rob Zabrecki also formed a trio of magicians that called themselves the Unholy Three and amassed a cult following. So here is Rob Zabrecki. Keep in mind, if you wanted to, he could make you disappear. I, uh, I was thinking the other day about when I was a kid, like I wanted to be, I, just, I was obsessed with cult figures. Like when I was a kid, William Burroughs was a cult figure. Iggy and the Stooges were cult figures. And uh, now, like I'm, you're sitting across from me, and you're kind of a three-time cult figure. <laughs> <laughs> with the music, with the magic, and with the acting. So you should write a book. Hey, glad you asked. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I have been. Um, the past 10 years, I've been kind of... Uh, writing a, I guess, a memoir of sorts, you know, and it's turned into a 23 chapters of, you know, looking back on, uh, you know, childhood and the teenage years and falling into the, you know, music world and the kind of nascent Silver Lake music thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And then weirdly reinventing myself as a, a magician, <laughs> which still trips me out. How did you start writing this book? Uh, I started writing it because, you know, like you're at a party or you're talking with your friends and you start swapping stories and everyone's got the crazy story about this or that. And uh, I never thought mine were all that interesting, but over time people would, would say that that really is something like that didn't happen to me. That that is pretty that is pretty weird. That is an unusual thing. And, uh, you know, I knew I knew some things I did were, you know, that happened to me were were on the bizarre side of things. Well, but what about the way you look at things as well? Not just the, the events and circumstances, but mm -hmm. how you... Well, I mean, that's that's hard to say because, I, I mean, I, I can't see, you know, I'm looking through a filter that feels totally natural and organic to me. But to other people, you know, it's not at all. It's the opposite. Right. Um, and I've been able to kind of filter that through and articulate that a little bit better in my... In my uh, magic life, I would say, to, through a, a character that I created that has a real distinct, you know, point of view and figure mm -hmm. that's part me and it's part, you know, f things that I just have always loved and have kind of made up. Right. Now with the book, how, like, what, where did it first, like, how did you first start writing it? Was this, is this the Wikipedia page? Like, yeah, this is a, uh, this is, so I said, okay, I'm going to write, you know, I love, I, first of all, I always love memoir, you know, mm -hmm. I, that's always the, one of my favorite you know uh uh types of books that I've, you know, I've always enjoyed so I've read a million of them although when I started writing this one I didn't I didn't point to one and go I want to be like this or I want to be like that I just wanted the facts straight as far as I could remember them because you know like everybody's memories fuzzy at best mm -hmm. you know so I kind of created a like I, I think it was a hundred and twenty five thousand word what felt like Wikipedia entry of the beginning of you know every every memory that I ever had that was worth putting putting down. Did you research it like a Wikipedia page? Like, did you annotate these these things as you putting them down? Did you Some things, yeah, and you know there were a lot of conversations with friends just to make sure. Hey, did that so on this night? Did that kind of happen like that? Mm -hmm. and, you know, try to 
get as straight to, you know, the truth as possible. But what I found... How long before uh, you had confidence in your memory? Like, how many, how many people did you need to ask, did, did this bottle really get bested over that, that guy's head? How many times did you have to have yeses before you started trusting your own memory? One. Yeah, I would just... I figured if somebody else could remember it like I did, that, mm. that, was, that was plenty and fine. And, and then, you know, over time, you talk to more people and that, you know, you kind of double check and, and, yeah. and find out that, you know, sometimes it's even more outrageous. Things are more outrageous or interesting than you even remember them. Well, there's some shit you missed. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. What's your your background? Do you have an entertainment background? Do you come from an entertainment family? Like, hell no. I think I would have been voted least likely to be in show business as a kid, being kind of a shy and awkward kid growing up in Burbank, whose dad was a carpenter, and my mom worked for the phone company, and later coordinated weddings at a fancy restaurant called the Castaway, which sat on the Burbank uh, Hill there kind of overlooked the golf course and, uh, you know, the, the valley. But, uh, yeah, I had no, no affiliations at all. I mean, like, my earliest memories of show business at all were my, my grandpa was a, uh, a maintenance engineer in Pasadena at the Masonic Temple. Mm-hmm. And I'd go hang out with him on the weekends, and he'd be sweeping up and cleaning this, you know, this big old mysterious building that I had no idea what the Masons mm-hmm. did. But I did know that they had a theater, you know, inside of the building that was incredible. And, uh, did you see shows at the theater or no, you, no you way. just knew there was a theater. I was hanging out with the, the janitor. Yeah. You just knew there was a stage though. Yeah. And, and the I, stage called to you in some way. It weirdly, I mean, I hate to, as, as cheesy as it sounds. Yeah. Like, cause he'd be off cleaning and I had kind of run the place. Mm-hmm. And I just remember standing on this mass. It felt massive, this massive stage. And there's a ghost light. Cause it's, you know, he's, mm-hmm. it's Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon. He's cleaning it. There's no shows. This is before there's anybody, no one in there. No. And if there and you were, do a soft shoe across the stage. Yeah, I wish I did a, uh, maybe some cheap trick air guitar at best, uh, and kind of went through the wardrobe when I could and just tripped out on these, like, would you dress up and then go on the stage alone? Occasionally with no- I might throw a crown on or a robe, you know, and like, I was also scared that like, I didn't want to get caught. And then if somebody saw me, they'd be like, well, what are you doing? Like suddenly I had to be somebody or something. And right. God knows I had no idea or conceit that I could have done any of it, but it was just fun. It was like, all right, this is, so people, so that's when I, it occurred to me that like people would sit there and, you know, I got movies. I grew up, mm-hmm. you know, with television mm-hmm. and movies, but like people would sit in a theater and watch somebody do something, let alone have it be point of view or music. I did know about, you know, rock bands performing on stages, yeah, yeah. but theater, was, this was different. This was not something that I would equate, would have equated to like a rock show or something. Right. It's just, it's going to be you and people. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. So what, you're like nine years old then? I mean, seven to, yeah, like even, yeah, probably, probably six to six to ten. And what drew you to Hollywood? Like what first drew you to Hollywood? Music. It definitely was music. I mean, you know, by the time I was 12, 13, we started to go see bands. And, and uh, it was in the early 80s, so that, so hardcore was happening. And that was, it was the tail end of like, what I had seen in the decline of Western civilization, part one. You know, so was it mosh pits and yeah, violence and, and uh, cop riots? Yes, and uh, something that I you know quickly got into and pretty quickly got out of because of that for the same reason of the the the, the violent aspects of it wasn't something I could really sink my teeth into too much. <laughs> you know, there was one. There was. But a, you're such a bruiser. Yeah, exactly. I know you look at me and you're like, oh, of course, that guy's stage diving. Uh, but there was this one night I can remember that. Uh, I was with some friends and we were 
my mom took us. Why don't we start to take us to the shows, you know? And the deal was... Mom, Your mom took you to the hardcore punk shows. She had to. Well, yeah, somebody yeah. had to. You know, yeah, we yeah. took the bus sometimes, but like usually somebody's parents got nominated. But what, are you like 14 or are you 13. like 17? Yeah, okay. no, it's really, it's yeah. very, too young to drive. Yeah. So. so this one time, my mom takes us to the uh, Perkins Palace out there in Pasadena and the, the Plasmatics are playing. And we had always go very early. It was like, because it was, a, you know, we'd make a day of it. It was always a, and we couldn't go that often. It wasn't like we were going to shows every night. So the shows were spread out. Mm. But plasmatics are playing, so we get there very early, and uh, I had probably had you know a hundred sexual fantasies about Wendy Williams. I had the poster of her like, kind of like with her mouth over a shotgun. Yeah, and it was pretty young, and it was like definitely boner worthy material, and the music was like electrifying, and it was all kind of great, you know, and, and very much fantasy. The, the looking back at plasmatics are very much caricatures of yeah. like what so a lot like of people could, would like say. Kiss very much like Kiss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I was 13, and it was, like, certainly cooler than, you know, listening to ELO and Ted Nugent like my brother was. And, like, mm-hmm. that was kind of, like, a dead end for me. But uh, we show up at this thing at the gig of the sound check, and Wendy O comes out, and I see her, and I'm just like, I couldn't believe it. And I just started to get confidence in myself hanging around some of my friends that were giving me, you know, a little more, being, I was becoming a, kind of a confident teen. And I had uh, I'd asked her for an autograph. And she's like, yeah, what do, you, what do you want me to sign? And I just remember pulling up my shirt, you know, all the way over my head. And she just signed my, right across my Your belly. Torso? Yeah, right across my torso and belly, signed her name. And then, uh, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I'm never going to wash that. And, <laughs> and that night we're, you know, diving around, stage diving around and mosh pitting and doing all that stuff. My mom comes early and she pulls up in front of the Perkins Palace uh, stage door. So it's an the old theater. You probably went there, I would assume at some point. It's the old Raymond Theater on, on Raymond Street, Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And she pulls up in her, in her Chevy Impala to pick us up. And like she, she knows she's supposed to be around the block. Like, you don't pick, up, you don't pick us up in front. Right. Because we're liable to get, you the know. The 17-year-olds are going to see you. <laughs> exactly. And they might just, yeah, might, it might, could be an ass-kicking, you know. Uh, so anyway, she did pull up in front. To, I don't know why she was curious or just she wanted to see what was going on. And the doors... According to her, doors open and some shirtless kid with a mohawk is thrown on her the hood of her car, and she's horrified and just fr- she's can't she's frozen and can't she can't believe this this had happened. It's a nice little Scottish lady who's it's no, you know, is not into it. like she doesn't understand counterculture and doesn't want to basically. She barely knew who the Beatles were. Um, so anyway, uh, that night I you know we did she. We, did she watch you take off your shirt and see one year William? No, she that she was long gone before that. Oh. But but we came out all sweaty and you know, the, all these kids spill on the street like feral cats, you know. Yeah. The show's over and there's my mom sitting in the front and I was just like, Oh my God, I was just paralyzed. So I grab my friends and we run and jump in the car and take off and she we drop everybody off and, and in my in the back of my mind I was thinking like, God, this like these everyone's beating each other up for like no reason. It seemed really stupid and and kids were really violent, and there was a lot of tough, you know, testosterone. I yeah. think there was five women in the audience, yeah. you know. And uh, people were getting hurt. People, people were, getting, were definitely like, getting actual hurt. Actual trauma. Yes. Like, yeah. Trauma was being inflicted. Yes, for sure. And uh, my mom just said, "Robbie, no more punk rock concerts." <laughs> I remember just kind of thinking, "Yeah, mom, no more punk rock concerts." <laughs> that was it. So then, anyway. Uh, yeah. Then how do you start playing music from there? Well, like that, you know, like had you learned how to play before that? Or? No, no, not at all. I was like, I think I was, I was 16, and my 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 musical, 
you know, uh, tastes were shifting. I was listening, you know, avid Rodney listener, Rodney on the Rock. Mm. So got into the like the Paisley Underground, I guess, and some of the '60s mod stuff that was like happening. Rain Parade and Dream Syndicate, Rain Parade, even the Untouchables. I thought were really good. Those are great bands. You know, they were really good live band. It was fun to see. Uh, Three o'clock, of course, was a big one. And that, it, you know, that was really an extension of like Frontier Records and what it, mm-hmm. what I'd already been kind of listening to. It was just a nice, like, it was a really easy gateway thing. No, no violence, but yeah. still you go to the Cathay de Grand to see bands and Whiskey, Roxy. It was still a thing, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, music. The scene, it was a great scene. Yeah, it was certainly, yeah, there was a, there was a vibrant, like, DIY community around. There were fans. People dressed for it. You, yeah. People went and they dressed up and they, it was, they made a special thing out of it. Absolutely. And even though I think, like, Looking back on that mod world, it got made fun of, I think, by by certainly by the goth, you know, the, the goth. The goth yeah, exactly. And no one's making fun of them. Uh, <laughs> but like there was definitely like a pecking order to like what was, you know, what was going to like sort of reign as far as in the, I don't know, almost machismo, like through the violence of just being like people being confrontational to one yeah. another as it, as it was on Melrose in the early 80s. But um, yeah, I just at one point, I'm like, I got to find out if I can play music because shit i'm watching all these bands play and i don't know i could probably like i really had like a burning desire to want to play music so i traded my you want to play music to be a musician or to be on the stage or what was the combo of that uh being a band it was like being a band that was Mm -hmm. it It was like i want to start i want to see if i can start if i have any musical talent start a band which and it was made it was made very easy for me because uh i was 16 when when my friend came over uh with a proposition to trade a surfboard that I had for a bass and it was like this crummy hollow body bass and I had this kind of crummy surfboard and it was like I think I determined at that point surfing was not for me um I try I mean I really tried like this is early 80s in Southern California and like like how punk was violent surfing was equally as mean and violent if territorial awful yeah it was the worst you know you're some kid from the valley and you show up with your friends and you go to Malibu, and there's just a lot of mean, spoiled kids who surf really well because they grew up, yeah. you know, in that culture and, and t- kind of taught to be territorial. And meanwhile, there's albums by the surf punks, you know, My Beach, My Wave, My mm-hmm. Surf, Go Home, Go Back to the Valley. You know? So it's like the writing's on the wall, yeah. literally. Get and a base. Get yeah. a fucking base. Get a base. I mean, the, yeah. the, the writing was not only, it was spray painted on the wall. The valves <laughs> yeah. go home. Like, it was like, all spray right. Spray painted on your car. Uh, what do you, oh, I got punched once. Yeah, I got, some guy socked me once. I was standing, uh, getting my friend's Volkswagen, and this guy pulls up. He's like Jeff Spicoli, but like with a buzz cut, because all mm-hmm. the kids had kind of tr- were transforming from surfers into, you know, punkers. And yeah. Guy took a swing at me. Just nicked my chin. It was not a big deal. But yeah, learning the bass was like, all right, so... Uh, Go down to the the music store, ABC Music in Burbank, and see if I can learn a few. Uh, learn the Batman riff was the first one, you know. So poorly and out Do of time. Do you remember how it goes still? Yeah. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I better not hum it. Yeah. Let's just say it's pretty easy. Yeah, chromatic. Yeah, the chromatic descension and ascension of a little riff there. But anyway, found, rounded up a couple guys I was going to high school with, and we had a little band called The Castaways, and... Would play named a, after your mother is the hotel see? the place where your mom worked. Well, you know what? I, I hate to but say you that. But there was the Castaways already. They had that song "Liar Liar." I know. I didn't know that. Yeah. I just thought it just sounded like a cool name. It and, is. Yeah, it wasn't bad. But uh, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen riffs. We learned like Bela Lugosi's "Dead" from Bauhaus, the the three mm-hmm. bass three note bass riff thing mm-hmm. that was like 
kind of the easiest, we learned kind of the er, easiest music that we could and then emulated and made our, up our own music. And that's Why it. not? Yeah, so that's the yeah. way to start, right? Yeah, You're not going to start with something with yes, something complex. Nope. Yeah. No. Anyway, so from that, that's, that's where it started. And then, you know, five years later, I found my way to uh, um, start in Possum Dixon, which is, you know, kind of the next chapter of. And Possum Dixon lasted like about a decade? Yeah, 89 to 99. Did that take you everywhere you were like kind of hoping to go? Definitely. Much further than I'd ever expected. Partially because the whole thing with having Possum Dixon was like low expectations. Um, the goal was to play at Al's Bar on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. That was like the, the thing that we really wanted to do. And then that happened. I think we, we got to open for the Imperial Butt Wizards. Great, incredible L.A. kind of almost semi-forgotten L.A. band. But like a collective? Did they have a lot of people in that band? Was there was, a, there was, they were a collective, but yeah, there was maybe, because, yeah, because they would have guards sometimes on mm-hmm. stage, like secured, like dre- mm-hmm. people dressed in fatigues, kind of like guarding the band that didn't need to be, like it was right. just bizarre. Yeah. But they were caught, they costumed themselves and um, were fronted by a guy called Paul Kay, really incredible original uh, singer. And they, I mean, it's just incredible what they did. But um, we got to open for them, and and um, and Hole was the, the other band, that, a pre uh, pre Nirvana, Courtney Love. Courtney yeah. Love, you know. Who so, was in Hole with her? Was, was Eric, Eric Erlinson? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was basically, her and Eric before. Yeah, but they had a really good. Um, they had a great uh, drummer girl named. Um, oh darn, her name's escaping me. But uh, Caroline, Caroline was her name. She was amazing. She she brutally just mm-hmm. beat the hell out of the drums, and then the bass players kind of came and went pretty quickly. It was, it was all, I think there was there were usually girls, uh, but anyway, um, I met all those people through Jabberjaw, the coffee house that I helped my friends Gary and Michelle start. Now who played Jabberjaw is a big deal, as far as big deals, as far as like a one small coffee shop that brought bands in from all over the country could be a big deal, but who like who played there? I mean, Nirvana was probably the one that put put the venue on the map uh, globally. You know, mm-hmm. I think after this again is pre-internet, so so the news traveled a little bit differently. But it, you know, started you had to remember this started off as a as a coffee house, as a dream that was like it was almost we're exchanging our college years for an art education to open mm-hmm. up an art gallery and a micro movie theater. There wasn't supposed to really have live entertainment originally, but because bands started coming, you know, band members started coming around and hanging out. Yeah, I mean, like definitely, like Celebrity Skin was one of the big bands, like Don Bowles and, mm-hmm. and company were showing up, and um, Red Cross, who we were just admired greatly and huge fans of. They started showing up, and and then it was like, well, we could build a little stage over here and have live music. So just like in a corner, because I mean, in the room corner. was about what a hundred square feet, maybe. Was it was it? about twelve hundred square feet, I yeah. think. It was a big shoebox. Um, and the stage ended up getting getting built up a little bit, but I feel it wasn't that big a shoebox. I think it was gonna be a medium sized shoebox. It was medium. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it was definitely certainly in a in a weird part of town. Like it yeah. was obviously the rent was the right price, and that's part of the reason that it was down there on this desolate block of um, Pico near um, Crenshaw. But uh, I think Urge Overkill was the first national band that like I don't even know how they got booked there. Michelle or Gary must have had some. They must have reached out. Maybe they, mm-hmm. you know, because at that point we got a listing in the LA Weekly was a thing. So it's likely that somebody, you know, one called of those, you. yeah, or that label they were on, yeah. you know, the label might have called and said, hey, can we? Was that Matador or something? They were on, um, I think, M- Amphetamine Reptile maybe or Touch oh. and Go. No, they, I think they were. Yeah. That might have been Touch yeah. and Go early on. 
so they were they came through i think i do believe they were the first national touring band and then it, it almost just started paving the way for other bands to come through but i mean helmet jesus lizard spoon pavement like a lot of the matter bands for yeah. sure those were hugely influential bands no? absolutely but also at that time there was a few other things that were happening it was kind of interesting was you had a uh you had the club fuck sect which is very uh la very known to the la world with like the post-goth um sort of mixed with snm yeah from just it was joseph brooks wasn't didn't he joseph brooks yeah. ron athey was like a key figure yeah, with all yeah. that and all those people that had run all that those fetish club and yeah, all that 80s like, stuff it was like fetish performance club it was the next very very voyeur uh, it was the next wave of of what that goth stuff yeah. had become where it was like yeah. the uh um or the uh, the research books that yeah. those great research books it was like a really weird world that i didn't it wasn't my thing so much I, at that point. But were they coming to Jabberjaw? Was yeah. Like a so you have the indie influence? rockers in one pocket, and then you've got the club fuck people in another, and then the kind of the Red Cross and celebrity skin people. These very, these very distinct but interesting people showing up, and and you know, all these people are performers and creators. And then mm -hmm. meanwhile, the kids from uh, Otis and and Cal Arts were dying to do art shows. Right. So you really had it was like for me, 1989 was a major year i was 21 you know i i just started the started the band possum dixon and was helping out jabber four nights a week so it was like every night was just packed with like who knew who knew it was yeah, going to happen yeah. you know so what jab what the not with jabber let's go back to possum dixon like okay so you managed to play al's bar on a friday night and then did you retire then or you, like, no then it was what? like hey come back and do that you know we did it fine and we how far did you get like did you ever play oxnard did you ever get oh yeah play san francisco oh for sure we well we were doing shows like san luis obispo so then so then beck comes into the picture in the silver Lake. like in at that point it was a weird time in la because you did have like hair metal still happening number one on sunset strip so it's still a big rock thing and then there's whatever people call pre-grunge you know there's mm -hmm. like that stuff starting to trickle in but that the grunge isn't in the vernacular yet it's right. just like oh those hippie bands from seattle that sound like zeppelin or whatever yeah. so there was that that was kind of trickling in but as far as like in the coffee house world there were only a handful of bands that were kind of constantly playing with each other and building up like what was becoming uh a little community in mm -hmm. which beck came in from from new york he was playing in a the anti-folk like how they call it a scene i guess it was happening there and he came to la and uh we just started doing a ton of shows together um at the pick me up and you know jabber giles bar place mm -hmm. like that and we get like pleasant game and read poetry and mix up you know uh, glue was another great band chandelier the 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 great chandelier was the singer of that band and uh, ethel meat plow was kind of yeah a misplaced band that didn't they didn't fit into like any of these anywhere yeah so, in fact, all those bands I just mentioned, I hadn't really thought about this, but they all tie into a, a documentary that is called Five Nights Out that a, a woman um, uh, named Jean Rayla put together back in the early 90s. And because all these bands were constantly interweaving, you know, band members and shows and stuff like that, she saw that and was like, hey, this is a thing and made a little uh, doc. And it's she screened it and it's 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 a low kind of a low rent doc can, on can people find it on youtube yeah i'm sure five nights out yeah five nights out i'd recommend it you i haven't gotta. seen it but i'm going to check it out later i mean it's just a bunch of weird footage from you know that that era but i guess the point is it was it was just an exciting time to to be alive because 
of all these things that had evolved and, and nobody had a record deal yet. Mm-hmm. There was no, nobody really had a, there weren't really any stakes. People right. were, it was, it was probably what I would in my, in my bong hit world was like, Oh, this is if I was 21 in 1977, which I would love to have adjusted my life to. <laughs> I can't quite, I didn't quite get the time travel. Still working on it. You have to tell you, I was 22 in 1977. I was 21 in 1977. See? And uh, the bands that you mentioned, the musical, <clears throat> they were a lot better than the bands actually were in 1977, probably. I th- it seems like there was more, more developed or, or better, better bands. I, I know we've talked about this before. Like you, have, you are really a, a guy who really like, digs into the historical. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing. I think, but I, I feel that maybe that's why so many of those bands were so good. Like, especially the Paisley Underground is all based on historical stuff that they then move forward. Yeah, right. So. That's, I think that's true. But no matter what you say, I will, I will forever dream of taking my time capsule back to you know, the summer of 1977, to starting off an evening at the Canterbury and going down to the mask and you know, wandering through all that and wondering if the Hillside Strangler is going to pick somebody up and, you know... Somebody else up. Yeah, somebody else up. And, like, all the political chaos that was going on at that time, to me, is just... I romanticize it to a level that is uh, high art, you know? Um, it's 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 like this dream fantasy that I... I think really starting with seeing the decline in 1980 really put all these images in my head of, like... I will never get to live that because I'm, I'm, st- I still am getting hair on my dick. Right. You know. You're like nine. What, how old? Nine. Are you? Yeah, yeah. I'm like not, Yeah. Yeah. But this so is so much cooler than my brother's Sticks records and what's going on in my elementary school. So, I did. I was able to see like this. There was a portal that I was like looking into, and it was all Don Kirshner's rock concert and seeing like Devo and those you know performances right. by Blondie right. and stuff. Just like. I remember Slade. Like for me, Slade, Doc see? Slade, which is way before. Yeah, yeah. but that's so, so. It's you know, equally as exciting, I'm sure. Yeah. Bowie, all that, you know. All that so stuff. you have to be back in the valley in a, in, a, in about 20 minutes. But what? Uh, how did you get to Magic? Because yeah. you know, you're going to get your record contract. You're going to play all over the world. It's going to become a different thing. And all of a sudden, maybe not all of a sudden, but you're going to want to you you figure out something else but how do you tell me, did you go to the magic castle and take an intensive study course did you apprentice how Hell did no. you become a, how, how did the magic happen? by i fell in, i stumbled into it uh entirely by accident i mean i was in uh the band was you know on down we were we were on the downward spiral as you know every band has kind of a shelf life I've, i always knew that and with ours it was over you know a period of years and we're out there slugging away it's the mid 90s and and uh we're on tour in baltimore we're doing a nightclub tour and uh, we do our sound check. It's a hot summer. I'm walking around downtown Baltimore. And I'm just trying, in my mind, I'm, of course, all I want to do is find the locations where John Waters made pink flamingos and female trouble. And, you know, I'm, I'm of course, lost in someone else's yeah. past rather than my present, which could be, some would say, was interesting. I didn't, but for me, it was like, no, I must go find the ghost of divine. <laughs> like crazy shit that goes on in my mind so i'm walking around and i'm trying to like oh maybe that's where divine ate the dog shit i don't know and it's hot you know it's muggy so i see like a shoe store i'm looking for a place to tuck in with the air conditioning maybe a library uh a restaurant and don't see anything at all and then i'm continue walking and there's an air conditioner outside of a shop i'm like wherever that is i'm going in that's i'm heading in that i don't care what it is 
and it's a magic store. It's called Kenzo's Yogi Magic Mart. And uh, I'm like, well, all right, I'll kill 10 minutes in here. So I walk in, and it's exactly what you would expect when you walk into a magic store. There's, you know, display cabinets and a straight jacket over here and some stenciled bunny rabbits on <laughs> straight it. Straight jacket. Yeah, I mean, like stuff that you have no idea what's about. And I didn't care what it was about. I had no interest. I thought magic was stupid. I had, I had my limited knowledge of it was Siegfried and Roy and magic specials I saw on TV that made no sense to me. That didn't, they weren't magical at all. Purple jumpsuits and, mm. you know, razzmatazz and glitter and gold. And like, it just was not anything that, that, um, the lions. Yeah. There was, I didn't connect with it at all. So I just spent 10 minutes kind of looking at stuff and then I felt guilty for loitering and not buying something. So I asked the guy working behind the counter if I could make a nominal purchase for uh, a trick that I might be able to perform down the street late at night. And he, he says, maybe what what about this and he takes out a little green silk handkerchief and he pushes it in his fist and he squeezes his fist and presto changeo the handkerchief's gone and two major things happened uh i couldn't believe what i'd just seen it was totally incredible because it was like a twilight zone episode i'm the only guy in there it's insane and this thing was for sale for 10 bucks i could buy this thing of course i did put it in my pocket fumbled with the instruction you know for a mm -hmm. second went back to the club forgot all about it and then that night we're, we're getting through our set about midnight and um, our guitar player breaks the string. And I remembered the object that I had in my pocket to vanish, mm -hmm. you know, to, to vanish a small item. And I don't know how, but I, I was thinking on my toes because rather than take out the little green silk handkerchief, which didn't seem right, appropriate to vanish in front of a bunch of indie rockers, uh, I thought, who's got a wrapped condom? And that's just what I said in the mic. Who's, who out there? Anybody got a wrap come? Yeah, you got one. Throw it up here. So I take it out of the wrapper, and very poorly, I, I made it vanish while our salsa, our guitar player, is tuning up. And uh, I'm just thinking it's the stupidest throwaway, like, gimmicky joke that is going to, you know, get get us through this little moment. Yeah. And people went kind of nuts for it. Like it was, there was a very big applause. Like equally to the song, equal to a song. No, it was, this was done to dead silence. Yeah. Like in, embarrassing. But what, what was the applause like? Equal to the oh 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 it was the, the oh yeah absolutely more. It was more than it, it like <laughs> more than the songs that we get. For yeah, the last exactly. Two months of the tour. Yeah, <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. It was like it. Whoa, like this. And then I thought I had this whole epiphany. I'm like I'm looking around at these guys who are miserable, I'm miserable, what am I doing with these, like, I just entertain these people with a thing that I did that came from this whole other place, mm. and although I couldn't understand it, I couldn't really grasp it all, it didn't, didn't sink in yet, it was very clear to me that, like, I had done something that was, to me, personally important, as stupid as it sounds. So, long story short, finish the tour, next night we're in New York, I do it again, it's no fluke, people applaud it's good people in new york applaud. yeah yeah so you did it on purpose in new york like same so yeah oh yeah did you wait for a guitar string to break no i said you know what guys third song I'm, I'm drawing a line right here in the set list i'm doing the thing i don't even know what i called it you know like the rubber thing yeah. uh you guys just wait you know and then i did it and it was good and so we drive back to la my girlfriend who's now my wife has a pass to go to the magic castle a uh, private club in hollywood for magicians and this their tommy guests Zabrecki. tommy Zabrecki now formerly Tommy Jean Tucker Ross, uh, a name she should have never changed. <laughs> it sounds so cool every time I say it. But uh, yeah, she has a pass to go to this place because she was uh, managing the Viper Room at the time and got there were a lot of perks that came with that mm -hmm. job, as you can imagine. So uh, we went there, and I got to tell you, uh, 
I walked in that place and I discovered that magic was an art form and a neglect, in my opinion, an, a neglected one, mm-hmm. uh, but one that I wanted to learn more about and, and study and, and had some conceit that I could actually become a magician and, and reinvent myself as one, which was the most punk rock thing I've ever done in my life. So did you go straight to performing at the Magic Castle? <laughs> did, you go, did you go to magic clubs or what did you? I mean, I did. I went to the Magic Castle as much as I could. I put together a audition. You have to audition to become a member, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I squeaked past a, an audition. I was not good. I, there's by no means was I was a fish to water thing. Like I'm not a technically inclined person. Uh, I don't. I'm not. A, I don't get knacky stuff. You know, really quick. It takes right. for me. It's a lot of preparation and practice and like burning desire stuff. Yeah. You know, like anything. Anything I've ever done is not come. I would say is is come through trial and error yeah. and lots and lots yeah. and lots more than I think more than most but maybe not I not don't know. more than me uh, well not th- everything I mean, is difficult for me okay everything well, then, that I ever wanted to do has caused me intense misery same then yeah. then we're then we're the same because yeah. some people go oh yeah I just did I'm like well how do you like can I, I don't know. yeah I don't can know. I untake those 40 hits of acid <laughs> one night I took 25 hits of acid and I do think that that did mess with my learning I feel that the probably like 80 hits of acid I took improved my ability to function in the world. In one night or over a period of time? Oh, no, over a period of time. Okay, yeah, yeah, over a yeah. yeah. I think over time that it can be true. Yeah. If you take it, if you do, if you take acid right, it can certainly improve. But yeah. this one night I, I was in a blackout and I ate a whole sheet and it was... Oh, that's not good. And I think that... Gave me some permanent damage. Yeah. But your eyes look great. You have this great well, look in your eyes. It's very singular. <laughs> and I think it might be a result of that. And they're really maybe. a mesmerizing kind mm-hmm. of a look in your yeah. eyes there. Well, thank you. Well, but so talk about your, yeah. your, your magic shows, like at the Whiskey and the Roxy. Because you yeah. started doing magic between bands. Yeah. So it was an extension of like, like when you're doing a magic trick when a guy broke a guitar string to actually being a magic act between bands. Yeah, well, that was the thing was, you know. And how, how Tommy was involved. Yeah, I mean, the thing was is we, uh, we had a great privilege and, and access to, to. Stages. Yeah, to stages. And not only stages, but cool ones and good ones with people that I really admired and dug and had, kn- had known from music and, you know, met through the kind of the Jabberjaw world and really through, you know, Pleasant Gaiman was like a big, uh, we were very close and she was like a, you know, kind of a big sister to me mm-hmm. and introduced me to so many cool people that I, from all the, you know, they'd been in a lot of the 70s bands and, and had written about, you know, was a great, very good journalist and covered a lot of music. So she, hanging around her was like kind of, met a lot of really interesting people and, um, She's Which a booster. Like, she's your booster. She was. She still is. We're still right. we're still good friends. She's awesome. But um, yeah, that led to just like performing. Like for, she used to have a, a Ringling Sisters fundraiser that she'd hold, and she'd get the likes of you know uh, you know like I mentioned Red Cross or a Dream Syndicate, uh, Concrete Blonde, Henry Rollins, Flea, all the kind of L.A. Mm-hmm. people. Tomato Plenty. She get you know mm-hmm. versions of the Go Go's and the Screamers and Christian Hoffman. All these kind of you know, L.A. folks that... Luminaries. Let's luminaries, say. Yeah. I, absolutely. And then jam a magic show in there, you know, because mix it up, because that's pleasant, that was Pleasant's thing. Was but how, what did you do with your magic show so you actually fit in there? Because they will jam a magic show in once, but you were continuously playing, yeah. giving your performance with these bands. So what did you do to make it Well, so it we, we made it interesting to look at. Was The thing was, we were not good at all technically we were terrible magicians because we didn't have the stagecraft and the stage time that it requires to be good like like anything but we had a look that we looked like silent film 
uh, it was Tommy and me, so we became Griffith and Clementine was our was the band was our magic band name, you know. And uh, it was a boy, it was a cat and mouse thing. Boy meets girl, you know. Boy puts puts girl in trance, all a '50s hypnotist. Uh-huh. But meanwhile, we're making, we're, we're wearing this kind of heavy makeup. I'm I'm kind of fashion like Dave Anian from The like Damned, and she's kind of got a uh, early Susie Sue, but Clara Bow thing, Thetabara. Uh, Mixed with it. Yeah, it's kind of a silent film goth thing that we're just. It's just like we're, we're dead silent film stars mm-hmm. performing to uh, exclusively pretty much to the music of Nina Rota, who did all the music for the Fellini films and did a lot of great circus. Did you have a lot of patter? Like no, days? zero. So it was all, it was all silence. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in magic, if you do something silent, that just means you do it to music. Okay. So you got to track. So you're not speaking in a microphone. Right, right. You set the stage. But you track it. Yeah. And every, every it's, there is a script, but it's, it's internal. And, and the tricks kind of were theatrical in the sense we set the stage up with everything. Music mm-hmm. starts lights come in our faces and suddenly we're you know we're doing 10 magic tricks over a in a in a sandwich in a in a Nina Rota sandwich but, and you and you need to hit your marks with these cuz the music is there for like the the reveals and the exactly yeah the music was kind of um you know it it was aligned with the with our internal script mm-hmm. so yeah it was absolutely that that's how it worked and uh and it was a great way to to get stage time early on even though you know we were not good people are the, the few people that remember seeing us re- remi- happily remind me that it was kind of a not a disaster, but it, it was no <laughs> we were less, we were no pen and teller. Let's put it that way. Um, but you know, I, again, I had the I had the conceit and the nerve to think that I could do it, and this like desire that I just had to I, I had to. It was like this weird thing. Like it just seemed cool and interesting, and. Uh, in some ways, in a lot of ways, it still still does. So you, but you became more okay. How long did Tommy last before you got had to get rid of thirty Tommy? shows? And she's like, you know what? You love performing. You like being on stage. I hate it. People would come up to after a show and you know maybe give her a, a compliment, maybe a, a doubtful compliment. You know, whatever it was, she didn't like it. Even if someone's praising her, or someone said that's the worst thing I've seen, she was like, she wanted no part of it. Right. She'd wanted to run, hide in the dressing yeah. room. But I didn't, you know, so I carried on as the ghastly Griffith for, for like another 50, 30 shows, say, maybe 50. And then eventually got the nerve to just be, start speaking. And I started creating, um, I started realizing that I loved the writing, the scripts for uh, what would become a character known as now just Zabrecki, just my last mm-hmm. name, which is what I use for magic. Um, it's a great magic name. It's a, you know what? It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's not bad. And then you had, you teamed up with two other people for one, at one point for, for like what it must have been hundreds of shows, Hundred, easily hundreds of shows. Um, yeah, the Unholy Three we were called again. We had carking back to silent. That was Lon Chaney's last film, The Unholy Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just yeah, it was my two best friends in magic. Uh, David Lovering is also a mu- musician, magician, drummer for band Pixies, and our our good friend Fitzgerald, who is very funny, um, a la Steve Martin, like out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, comedy, but it has its own point of view and really bizarre kind of take on it. So the three of us um, put together a magic trio and did colleges and Magic Castle and just, yeah, literally did hundreds of shows. Did you tour the country? Or no. In, in the we were all kind of had to kick around in L.A. for different reasons. And, and uh, you know, I was still finding my own way as a magician while I was in that group. And it, it, it led to me being really comfortable and confident. Uh, after being in a magic duo with Tommy and then a trio with those guys, at the end of it, say 2003, 2005 at the latest, just walked away from it. We all kind of, well, Pixies got back together is yeah. really what happened. Yeah, yeah. And Dave's still 
somewhere on tour, I'm sure, tonight. So that that led to my own kind of exploration as a solo. We're almost out of time because yeah. there's limits. We get back to the valley. You got to get back to the, you can't. It's hard to stay away from the valley, I guess, if you're from the valley. I know it is. But we haven't talked about it, the acting. So the, like I think maybe it's a, it was it a natural thing for me, like a, a solo performer to the acting, and just maybe you can just say some highlights of the acting, not necessarily yeah. roles. And then also what it does for you. Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm doing these shows in the Magic Castle, and, and a good friend of mine one night pulled me aside. He's like, you have this character. You have a great persona. you got to look. Why aren't you acting in TV and film? You're in Hollywood. And it, like, hit me over the head. I didn't just I never really thought about it, you know, in that way. Like, in my adult life, I was like, wait a second. This could, yeah, why not? How old were you? 33, 35, mm-hmm. maybe. And, uh... It didn't take long. I went home. I said, hey, I, Jack said I uh, maybe ought to think about being triacting out. And she thought it was like, un- unlike probably most women who's, who married a musician and turned into a magician, weird. And then he says, oh, I'm going to try acting. And she's like, she, she was like full on green light. That's a great idea. That He's right. You should. So, I mean, literally next week, I enrolled in a local company theater, uh, local theater, Theater West, and enrolled in a program where I'm scrubbing toilets and vacuuming the theater and dusting everything off and picking up old show bills for two years, a Saturday mornings, learning in exchange for learning how to live on stage a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I got a commercial agent and pretty quickly started booking like decent commercials and started making my... Like Denny's? Was it a Denny's? Yeah, was, yeah, I did a Denny's. The, and a, The Super Bowl Denny's one? Had a, I had a few Super Bowls, uh, Super Bowl commercials, and a, and a nice string of like playing dropouts weirdos vampires uh you know auctioneers is is weird yeah as 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 broad as those things are those are things i could kind of pull off and uh and then that led to slowly getting small roles in in tv shows and i immediately found out that in tv and film acting was just as great as a challenge as becoming a magician or an act or or a musician because i know nothing really about this and learning a craft a craft and a skill is something that you just do forever and you never really get it right. You're always trying to just do a little bit better than the time you did it before. And you can age as an actor, you know? I think you, right. you, you age better as an actor uh, than you do a musician, you know? Certainly as a writer. Especially you, as a pop musician. Especially as a pop musician. Yeah, yeah God knows that ain't pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, There's a she, few people that have pulled it off, but a lot the, of... It's, it's a small, it's yeah, a small percentage. Yeah. And you look at the big picture, it's mostly like... Yeah, you go to hear that first record, and the guys, and you just kind of gotta just look into the lights yeah. and you know imagine. But uh, anyway, it's been it's been a great journey, and and I think that the performing arts, like it's kind of my calling, you know, for better or for worse. I I love it. I love all aspects of it, and um, it's always just it's always like one challenge to the next. It's always the next thing. It's always a little bit different, you know. Mm-hmm. Would you, are you going to go to politics next? Do you think? Or? Definitely. <laughs> Def- school I'm, board. I'm Just on go my for way. the school board. Start with the school Start with board. The sc- really? Yeah. Like what? Like principal or vice? No, no. It's it's, it's a whole outside uh, body. You, really? You get elected. You run for uh, as a. For, you don't have any kids, so you'd be no. perfect because you're totally objective. And that'd be totally creepy. Yeah. It would be totally creepy. <laughs> I think yeah. I'll stick with uh I'll stick with acting and magic and music for a while. We'll see where that goes. Are you, are you playing music at all now? Occasionally, you know, it's weird, like stuff comes up, you know, twice a year, 
somebody will say, hey, I'm doing a benefit show and all the performers do a tune. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes in a magic performance, I can find a way to weave in a little song in there and do a little piece to it. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know, like sometimes people put on shows and they'll say, hey, would you come do one one tune or a cover song? And the answer is always yes. I love performing music. It's, it's still fun. Now that there's no stakes at all, it's like, oh, great. You know, sing a television song. Yeah, I could. I know the words, you know. So you look back to this kid at the Masonic Temple on the stage. Is he pretty fulfilled? Yeah. Beyond. Very good. Thank you, Robert Zabacki, for coming to Skeveland and talking to me, Alan McDonnell. Thanks, Alan. Cool. Okay, that's enough Skeveland magic for now. Rob has vanished and puff of smoke, and I am soon to follow. This edition of Skeveland is presented with encouragement and assistance from Rare Bird Books. If you want to know more about the Skeve or Alan McDonnell or Rare Bird Books, go to theskeve.com and rarebirdbooks.com. Thanks again to Tyson Cornell and Julie Callahan. Skeveland, coming to you from Hollywood, California. The city, not the industry. It's not the worst place you could be.